We had been really working on those relationships for about a year and had been selling for about a year. And, and I would say less so than, than pivoting. Honestly, they just, they just shut down. Hey, my name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn about how to find and work with flavor scientists to help you with your food or beverage brand, how sampling events teach you exactly how to market your products, and what are the most important questions to ask when vetting new manufacturing partners in the food and beverage world. Before our show, I wanted to chat about the storefront signage maker. It's an easy way for any brick-and-mortar shop owners to let your customers know that you are open, available for curbside pickup, delivery, online information, and more. Customize any message you like, automatically create a QR code for your store, then print it off from home. It's easy and simple to use, no design experience required. Create a sign yourself at shopify.com slash signage. Today I'm joined by Christina Ross Blankfein, co-founder of Swoon. Swoon is modernizing classic drinks starting with lemonade and iced tea, hitting a sweet spot previously missing in the beverage aisle and was starting in 2019 in Bayside, New York City. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much, Felix. Yeah, so the 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 we're just talking off air about the evolution of the 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 business. So talk to us more about how it all began. Like, where did the idea come from, and and um, you know how how it basically evolved since the beginning. Absolutely. So we really came at this um, because my partner Jen is type one diabetic, and so we we have we're very mission driven in wanting to take sugar down, but also realistic in knowing that the only way to do that is to create products that really give you that taste, that feel, that super celebratory happiness of sugar, because when it feels great, and that's why people turn to it all the time, um, sugar, but we all obviously know um, the health, the negative health impacts. So we wanted to really replicate that feeling. Um, so we actually got started, Felix, because we were in business school and Jen came over to a dinner party that I was hosting. I love to host. I'm Cuban. I was making a mojito because it felt like the right thing to do. And um, as I'm sitting there looking at my diabetic friend pouring in a cup full of white table sugar to boil it down to make the simple syrup, I realized like, oh my goodness, this is, it just put into such stark relief how bad um, a lot of the things that we drink without even thinking about it are for us. So then we sort of hopped in the car, rushed over to Whole Foods thinking Whole Foods, you know, great ingredients, great products, healthy enough, right? Couldn't find anything that was made sense for her other than like quite literally soda water. And so that really set us off in our journey of, I think our first question is, you know, do do things like this not exist because they can't be made? And and really making sure that we, from the beginning, were super hyper-focused on the taste profile. So we have a line of that includes simple syrups, cocktail mixers, and then most recently we've launched iced teas and lemonades. Awesome. So you mentioned that I think you said you both were in business school. Were you business were you in business school together? Were you classmates? We were. We were classmates and we were actually seatmates, which is really what what sort of struck up our friendship. So a little bit of, of happenstance got yeah, us here. That's great. And were you both looking for an idea for a business? Were were you both interested in entrepreneurship specifically? Honestly, no. Um, I think we both were open to it. Um, 
but we weren't like, you know, whiteboarding, like, let's just come up with an idea. Um, so really came at this as consumers. Makes sense. So once you had recognized or both recognized that a product like this doesn't exist, you said something really important, which was you questioned whether did it not exist because it was impossible to make or like what was the reason why it doesn't exist in the world? So once you had that kind of question that you felt like you needed to answer, how did you pursue Like, What was next after recognizing that a product like this doesn't exist? Um, what was next for you to figure out? So we went about, honestly, trying to create all the flavor profiles with kitchen ingredients that we wanted to make, um, including sugar, obviously, but then took it to chemists to help us really understand and flavor scientists is really what the, the, the industry term, how to make it, but make it without sugar. So we use monk fruit. So again, did a whole battery of tests with knowing that our true north was, we are going to have a zero grams sugar product. Um, what are all the different alternatives? We uh, we very much wanted to be plant-based. We didn't want to kind of replace one thing that's not great with something else that's not great, like aspartame. And so um, really looked at the world of what makes things sweet, plant-based, that has no glycemic impact. And so we did so much trialing and testing around different alternative sweeteners and landed on monk fruit as the ingredient that we felt blended the best and really created the smoothest flavor. Um, but in really making the simple syrup, it was a two year R and D process because it really is so challenging. You know, sugar is a pretty powerful ingredient and it's so challenging to hit the, the rounded taste profile of sugar. And so we really worked closely with bartenders, with baristas, all the places that simple syrup is used, um, food editors. We were lucky enough to get to go to, um, the Bun app test kitchen and really do so many blind taste tests to really, really understand how to replicate that full mouth feel of sugar. Yeah. So you mentioned that you, you, you tried to create this in your, in the, the, in the basically home kitchen and then decided to take it to chemists and flavor scientists to figure out what to do next. And, you know, this sounds like a, a very complicated process where it's like, there's just so much involved in, in making a, a beverage. So tell us more about the details behind a, how did you, how do you even find a, a flavor scientist to work with? I mean, it's a great question. Cause when we started this, we we're like, Oh, what, how do we even go about mm-hmm. that? Um, as I mentioned, we were in business school, so we were lucky enough to have access to what was called the iLab. It was an innovation lab that brought together all sorts of industries um, and different entrepreneurs and operators in many different industries to to help students out. Um, we were in Boston, which has a really interesting tech scene, but also an interesting food tech scene. And so through that, we connected with somebody who put us in touch with our first flavor lab with whom we work. Got it. And you, you mentioned the simple syrup was something that took two years R and D. Was this done? Was this the work that was being done, or like what was what were you working with the flavor scientists to 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 create? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, between the flavor scientists and like I mentioned, a bunch of other um, trade specialists to really hit the flavor because monk fruit is two hundred times sweeter than sugar. And so you're using just really, really small, precise amounts. And again, that blend, we, we use, um, things to make it sticky, a little bit tacky gums to give you that, you know, that lingering sweetness instead of what a lot of high intensity sweeteners do is they have this like, bam peak. I think 
probably all of us have experienced it of sleep, but it's not fulfilling in the same way. And that's what we we really wanted to achieve. So it was a lot of tinkering, a lot of measuring, a lot of tweak this, tweak that. And, you know, it really is much as much an art as it is a science the, the, with the precision, because I think the other things we've learned, and I'm sure any um, chef, any bartender barista would also say is ingredients and, and taste all come together differently. And so when you reduce the sweetness a little bit, all of a sudden, sometimes the impact is that it's actually sweeter because in changing that balance, you shifted the citrus, the acids, the um, bitters, all of these things are all kind of come together and, and it's, it's a really complex process. And then I guess if you're, if you're interested or, or listeners are interested in the kind of how the sausage is made part of it, there's this other part of commercializing food and beverage products, which is that you can get something to taste great and be extremely balanced in a lab setting, but then taking that and making, you know, large quantities of it also changes a little bit the flavor just because of the way we we heat the product in order to not use um, artificial ingredients as preservatives. And so we have to create a vacuum. And so we heat it and create a vacuum. And, and the way that's done on a small scale versus a large scale also alters the product. Oh, wow. So yeah, lots of kind of different challenges as you scale up, not just with with how do you manufacture that scale, but then also how does it change the flavor as you as you scale up? I think that's a important point about how how almost intricate uh, it is to create create a beverage. Um, so and right now you, your shop has um, a few different lines. You have the lemonade and the iced tea. You have the syrup and you have the mixers. And we're talking off air for a bit about the evolution of all of this. Give us the, the timeline of the introduction of all these different products. So we ended up introducing the simple syrup to market in 2019. And we really took the approach of focusing on the food service world. As I had mentioned, we had developed some great relationships with top. I mean, we're also based in New York where the the food scene is amazing. Um, And so we had worked with some top bartenders, baristas to really help us out. And so that's where we introduced the product initially was um, through the trade and for customers to be able to interact with it that way. And then as you as we all experienced, um, things drastically changed for the trade um, in 2020 when COVID hit, especially in New York, where we had a lot of shutdowns. And so we ended up launching our mixers um, under the the soon name again in March 2020. And so that ended up being a pretty online and some retail um, presence launch. And then Later on in 2020, in August, we launched our line of lemonades and ready-to-drinks. And a lot of it, honestly, Felix, was just following the consumer. We Mm. got to the simple syrup because we were making mixers, but our trade partners kept saying, I'd love to use a monk fruit simple syrup instead of the full blended mixer because that gives them much more flexibility. And so we launched the simple syrup. And working with the simple syrup, we would oftentimes taste people at trade shows and at sampling events with a lemonade because it was sort of the easiest way for us to show just how smooth and well-balanced the simple syrup was, was to do one part or swoon simple syrup, one part fresh lemon juice, and then dilute it with water. You know, it kind of couldn't hide behind the bitterness of a 
coffee or a tea or the complexity of a cocktail. And then when we would make that, everyone would say, wait, I want that outcome. I, I want to bottle this lemonade. And so then that took us to the lemonades. Yeah, and I think I think one piece of uh, experience that that you've had that I really want to dive into is like how quickly you are pivoting or introducing new products based on on the realities of your of this of the the market, you know, with COVID, and then also hearing what your consumers are saying. So I want to dive into this a bit. So you mentioned you first started off in, in the food service world, basically going working with bartenders and baristas and working with them. And, and kind of wonder, what are the the pros and cons? What are the challenges? You know, other than I guess in normal times, what are the challenges with introducing your product to the world through the food service world? The, I would say a few things. One is that um, you basically have to really develop your partners, not only as your buyer, but also as your sales team. Because when you go to a bar, you know, the, the bartender really is the gatekeeper. When you go to a coffee shop, of course, people oftentimes have their order, but they still ask for advice and opinions. And so it's sort of this this layered relationship where you, you both are looking to these gatekeepers to both bring in your product, but then also ultimately sell it in a, in a slightly different way than is the case when you're talking about a CPG product at retail or obviously online, some of those gatekeepers don't exist. Yeah, and I can imagine that there needs to be some kind of way to either incentivize or some way to to uh, make it almost worth the while of the bartender barista to introduce a, a a you know a new a brand new product right to to their to their customers. Did you are there challenges with that? Like what what is it? What is the approach? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it really comes down to relationships, or at least that's how we've conducted our business. At the end of the day, people want to do business with people they like um, and they trust, and so. I think the majority of our focus was really in developing those relationships more than anything. Um, But you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of selling and sales strategy is is understanding your customer. And one of the hard things when you're at a bar, when you're at a coffee shop at a restaurant is they have so many demands coming at them from so many different angles. They're on a, you know, tight timeline and really streamlining operations is super important. So adding new products, adding new steps is really hard um, and and pretty unappealing. So, you know, really understanding again, their pain points and figuring out how do we create a solution instead of add another step. So that was important for us in terms of the bottle shape, the bottle size, um, and just making sure again, it worked with their operations and, and what they were trying to to deliver to their customer. Yeah, and I, I know you mentioned that the those initial plans were, were were cut short pretty early on. So, how long was your experience in trying to sell through the the restaurants and the the bars and the coffee shops uh, before you had to think about how to pivot? Um, we had been really working on those relationships for about a year, and and had been had been selling for about a year, and and I would say less so than than pivoting. Honestly, they just they just shut down, and so now we're starting to actually. You know, there were these moments in the summer where we started to get reorders again and 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 hear from our food service partners. So going back to relationships, I think that's super valuable. And so it really was less of a it was it was kind of needing to change all of us together. Um, but the, those tracks that we laid, um, we are we are obviously going to continue to work through. Mm. In through your experience, what have you found out about the food service world? What, what do they what do they care about that maybe a an end consumer 
wouldn't not that wouldn't care about that that they care about differently that you'd approach that kind of customer your basically B two B customer differently than than the end consumer. Yeah, again, I think it's really about. I think the operational piece was really valuable to hear and understand and and think about how you know storage you can't have a product that goes bad once you open it or how to store it and how, you know, we, all all of these pieces that with the end consumer is just a different experience because they just have so much going on and they're, they're so hectic, the food service space. And also honestly, the tight margins, I think what the other thing people um, maybe I didn't realize as, as well is just like down to the fraction of a penny how each bar thinks about the cost of their drink and the different ingredients that they're putting into it because they they just work off very narrow margins and so they're they're pretty precise about understanding how to how to create an offering that the customer wants ends at a good enough price but is is not so expensive for them to make yeah and are are these bartenders and baristas influential in 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 deciding to to order your product or are there other people involved as well that you know you typically find like a buyer or something yeah no i think it really depends on the restaurant group and and how things are run um in terms of of who does the ordering um but you're right there's oftentimes a general manager that does all of the ordering um at these shops so so there's several different parties to to speak to makes sense now once you started once you know covid hit and you had to start introducing this product to to the end consumer talk to us about that like what were the you know once you once everything started closing down what were the first steps that you, you and your team had to take to 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 adapt so we already were on um had our own dtc and also were on amazon and did have some retail presence. So we weren't caught um, totally off guard. And so it was mostly just refocusing on, on those pieces. I think one of the hard things was we, you know, like many people early on, we just didn't know how long it was going to last. So we did a lot of reshifting of our team where we had people who are, you know, core infield sales team members who liked social media and all of a sudden they shifted to doing running a whole influencer program for us and really being flexible and dynamic. So I think that was a really wonderful outcome um, within our team to see is just so many different people stepping up and and challenging themselves in different ways and kind of just having the mindset of like, get it done and and kind of do what it takes. Um, But again, I think one of our lessons learned was the value of diversity in your business. I think uh, you, you know, oftentimes you hear don't have just one big customer that you rely on, but I think we also learn don't have just one sales channel that you rely on. Makes sense. Now, one thing you mentioned earlier was about how you, you really just focus on following the consumers and, and hearing what they were saying. Where was this feedback coming from? Like what were some ways that you got the best feedback and that, that had an impact on the, the products that you're introducing? Yeah. You know, we, and this actually was a real challenge in COVID. We love sampling our product. We really stand by the taste and flavor of our product. And so we think that the best way to market our product is to have people try it, Um, especially actually because it is a a zero sugar product. I think oftentimes people hear that and they think, oh, gross, it doesn't taste good. Or is it actually good for me or things like that? So being able to, to really express you know, in this experiential way, like, Hey, it's delicious. Um, it's super valuable to us. So 
a lot of the feedback that we get is in sampling. So we do um, in normal kind of times run sampling programs, whether they be with our retail partners or just kind of in and around the cities that we are in um, and have presence. And so that was that that's I think where we get the majority of our best feedback. But then we also, as I mentioned, have our own site. And so we do reach out to our customers, we do customer calls, we survey um, our customers, trying to keep it always short and sweet. We email customers. So so really trying to develop those conversations. We also have a, a VIP Facebook group for some of our super fans um, and also dip in there to, to just ask questions and, and understand what problems people are trying to solve that we can help with. Yeah. And so with with sampling, if someone out there is creating a food or beverage products and they they want this kind of feedback, how did you even, how would you even set this up? Especially if you're just starting out and you don't have these, these uh, relationships yet, you're not selling into these, these retail locations yet. Are there ways for you to just reach out to a a venue or a place to set up a, a sample, a sampling event? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, some of it is, is understanding Um, what events are already happening and reaching out to them and asking if they want a beverage partner. Some of it is partnering with other brands um, and then sort of being on their, on their short list for, for when there's a need. And some of it is, is working directly with our retailers to, to set up sampling events. And and when you have these events and you have a a potential customer, potential consumer come up, what's the, what's the goal? Is it just for them to taste it and get their immediate reaction or are there certain uh, questions you're looking to get answered through the sampling events? Yeah, we mostly just want people to taste it and and to have exposure to the product. So um, that's, you know, to be able to introduce our product kind of on our terms, to give a little bit of the education behind it, a couple talking points um, to have this sort of nice branded experience, obviously also important, but really key for us is just having people taste it. Yeah. And you had mentioned that you were able to get uh, lots of great feedback to, to, to uh, influence what products you would release next. Were there any things around education or things around the marketing message that you're able to, to, to develop because of the conversations that you're having with, with customers at these sampling events? Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things we learned um, early on in the the lemonades and iced teas, which we launched in you know middle of August last year, where things were pretty shut down, was we just started to get some some pretty immediate feedback that one of our products wasn't sweet enough to people and didn't deliver on the full sweet flavor promise. And so, based on that feedback, we we made it sweeter. That makes sense. And these surveys that you had mentioned that you conduct with your customers that are probably purchasing from you online and you have their email address. What, what, what kind of questions are you asking here to, to help you with the business? So we really try to be, as I mentioned, short and sweet on it. You know, we, we understand people are busy and, and want to, to be able to get sort of statistically significant response, responses on it. So really do try to keep it short. So oftentimes we will survey differently um, based on like a, 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 like you're saying a very clear set of criteria. So we'll have a survey around what flavors do you want to see next? And that'll be the extent of the survey. Then we'll have surveys around how'd you hear about us so that we understand what marketing channels are working. Then we can survey around where do you want to see us in terms of shopping? Like what, what is the best um, way for you to get our product? So we, we try to sort of segment it. So people 
have sort of clarity of what we're trying to get out of it and, and don't ask too many questions all at once. We also see drop off sometimes when we have longer surveys. That makes sense. Have there been any surprises from some trends or things that you've seen in, in these surveys that, that surprise you or, 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 or you know, revelations that you had not realized yet? Well, one of the things that is always extremely encouraging and to see is just the number of people that hear about us word of mouth. And so I think early on, you know, that is always a surprising metric to have like any of it, let alone a significant amount of it. And then we love to see that grow um, over time because again, the most important thing for us is to really develop people who, who fold our product into their lives. That really helps us to the end of, of taking sugar down. Um, Cause when they're doing that, then they're not having a, a sugary beverage. And, and so seeing those word of mouth numbers always is the most encouraging and, and still sometimes I think a little bit surprising because you're like, oh yes, it is working. Hey, real quick. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now let's get back to the interview. Yeah. And you know, speaking of the, the, the people that are spreading the, 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 the product around through, through word of mouth, you mentioned you have a Facebook group for your, for your super fans. Tell us more about that. What, what led to the, the creation of this Facebook group? You know, again, I think just making, you know, I think it's sort of trendy to talk about communities, but I think for us, it really was about creating a, a group because of our product to um, understand the different ways people are using it, understand different recipes, understand sort of what brought them to it, what keeps them with us, um, being able to have those conversations. And I think the other piece is not just have it be, you know, us to customer, customer to us conversations, but within customers um, these ideas of, of recipe sharing was one of the reasons that we originally started it. That makes sense. And and how did you build this up? Was it just a good email blast to people that are already subscribers or exactly awesome? Now, in the since the inception of this business, you've launched. We had mentioned about three to four new product lines since then, and you mentioned the first kind of round, like was two years of R and D. What what have you kind of learned along the ways to to that that makes that experience either easier or faster, or anything that you've learned since launching these these subsequent product lines? So much. I think there's so much that you learn once you, once you do it once. I think a piece of advice that we got very early on that we really stuck to is um, quality and having really strict quality control guidelines. And um, I think over time, that's also been something that we, you know, you just get sort of second nature at what that means. So what it means when you go to factory, what are the right questions to ask a manufacturing facility? Um, what are you looking for to, to queue up that that's the case? What do their storage look like? Um, all of those pieces, I think over time, we've gotten so much better at vetting our partners um, by just knowing what to look for. But I think that that honestly holds true across everything. As, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the relationship piece, it's so much easier to, to be able to pitch a new an extent, you know, product line extension or even a new product line to people who already believe in our mission and who see the value of our products and who have customers who are are buying the products. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that a one thing you learn along the way is kind of what questions to ask, what to pay attention to. And you probably have a lot of questions that, that you ask. But if you were to boil it down, what are some of the most important kind of questions to ask, especially in in the kind of food and beverage world as you are you know touring these facilities and your vetting partners? What are some of the, the most most important questions that you definitely want to answer before you, um, you know, can kind of give the green light on a, a new partnership? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think a lot of it has to comes down to um, what happens when there is an issue and how do the issues spot? Because at the end of the day, you know, early on we were at all of our um, runs, but you want to get to a place with your partners where, where they're running it without you. Um, and so you really want to understand what their processes are to, and their checks and balances throughout the process to make sure that everything is going well. So I, I think understanding their internal processes is extremely important. And then also understanding how they react to finding something wrong. You know, one of our early partners, we had, will always have so much respect for them because they caught an issue one time of basically taking an ingredient that was for one of our SKUs and putting it in the other SKU. And they flagged that to us and they reran it on their dime. And, and that level of integrity and, and again, of issue spotting was, was extremely important to us. Yeah, along those lines, you mentioned um, these kind of quality control guidelines. What what does this actually mean? Like, if you are if you are again creating something like a food and beverage product, what what are important things to either pay attention to or make sure is included when you're talking about quality control to your to your potential partner? Yeah, absolutely. There's you know some of this is going to start to get a little bit very product specific. So to keep it a bit general, it's we do have very strict, I guess, um, kind of recipe instructions around the product to make sure that it creates that vacuum seal, as I had mentioned that, or it's not really a vacuum seal. It's sort of like just, just making sure that there's no air in the product so that it doesn't spoil. And because again, we don't use artificial ingredients. And so, um, really making sure that they have tight boundaries on understanding temperature that they're running product at for our product and, um, what's acceptable in terms of receiving product and how they store product, all of those go into their quality control guidelines. Yeah, and usually how, how are these things enforced once you have established them? Like, are there ways to make sure that it's being followed? Yeah, we, I mean, we, we still do go and we also try all the products off the line, inspect all of the products off the line, those sorts of things. Um, obviously what matters to us the most is that the integrity of the product that's within the bottle or can, but even, you know, we also care about the whole brand experience. So this also goes to labeling and, and just making, you know, having kind of a, a, a slim margin of what's acceptable of proper labeling onto the, the cans and bottles too. Makes sense. Um, and, and you had mentioned that you already had online presence before, you know, COVID hit. Uh, now that, that you've developed that, that business more, talk to us about more about what are the ways that you're able to drive more of the direct to consumer, direct to your customers line of business? Yeah. So we, um, like many do kind of a whole, whole spectrum of organic and paid, and then also really focus on the retention piece. So we have loyalty programs we have, um, and we're really excited about our loyalty program, even though no one uses it this way. And I'm so excited for someone someday to use it. Um, our loyalty program actually um, counts purchases that are made both online, but also in store. Um, so we were also excited about that piece. We have strong email lists, SMS. Yeah. yeah. How does it work to to be able to count the the online in store? That That's definitely very interesting to tie those two together. What's the Yeah, system? with the receipt. With the receipt. Okay. Got it. 
Yeah. Okay. okay. So you mentioned that organic paid and also retention was a key thing, the loyalty program. Um, and you mentioned uh, through SMS and email marketing too. What are some ways that work for you to, to bring back a customer through these channels where you have a way to reach out to them? Yeah. So, you know, the creating really strong, we review them all the time and, and we have design in-house, which I think really helps um, to, to create that fast twitch ability to, to, you know, do a lot of segmentation and automations on email has really helped us, um, with retention. So being, you know, kind of clever and, and testing out different calls to action to bring people to site, um, really understanding the reorder cadence, um, of the different SKUs, and then also making it a very specific, um, reminder based on that, um, are all ways that we have kind of reminded people to come back into the funnel. And look, I think the other part of it too, is also other social media, right? The organic side, I think also does support as does retail presence. Some of it is just reminding people like, Oh yeah, I liked that. I should order that again. And so if they see a beautiful photo or an influencer posting about it, or they see it in store. All of those for us are different touch points, even if they don't seem like they're as integrated in the, you know, direct call, call to action, um, for retention. Yeah, definitely all plays together. And, you know, one thing that you, you mentioned was this reorder cadence. If you if you know that people are ordering your product every 30 days or something, it, it, do you email them or do you reach out to them at the 30-day mark exactly. or like earlier? Like what's the, exactly. So I'm saying like, hey, you're probably running low at this point. Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. And you also mentioned some, some automation beyond that. It sounds like you probably have some kind of like drip of emails that you're going that are going out. Are there certain things that you have learned through this time that that just works really well to, or the, the the best to pull a customer back into into purchasing or at least checking out the site again? Yeah, you know, I think also giving people kind of occasions and reasons um, has been helpful. So we do pay attention to the holiday calendars and really do kind of create other use cases and occasions of use for people. I think being being mindful of, again, kind of why would the customer come back and, and trying to answer that question and then marketing in that way. That makes sense. I think that the, the important thing here is you're thinking it from the perspective of the customer rather than like, hey, pushing the product to them. You're saying, hey, there, there might be a, a holiday or some kind of occasion that that um, you know that your product can kind of solve for them, and I think that's important to come at it with that kind of that kind of perspective. Now, you mentioned um, some organic things as well uh, you know, on social media. Or is there a certain platform of choice for you guys that seems to 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 work the best for your your product? Organic. Um, Instagram has been the platform that we've invested most in. We have, um, again, by nature of some of our products, the ingredients, we can really showcase um, beautiful photography. Um, as I mentioned, we have design in-house, which also allows us to, to focus on a channel that has a lot of visual appeal. One of the things that we have always wanted to do is to make people feel the sugar without actually drinking the sugar. And so again, using a lot of visuals to, to cue celebration um, has been important for us. Um, we are like many others, so it feels very trendy to say, also enjoying dipping our toes into TikTok. I think it also is a really fun information exchange channel. And I think that one of the things that's interesting about TikTok in a way as compared to Instagram is that people actually learn stuff from it. 
and, and, and want and use it for educational purposes. Of course, there's all the like extremely silly dances and, and other, um, content on TikTok. But again, just by the, the way that they're, they're stitched together, there's a lot of sort of like blurbs and, and call outs and things like that. And the speed of, of information, I think actually makes it a really strong education channel. So we're, we're playing around by telling our, you know, take sugar down story and more humorous sort of zippy ways on TikTok. Yeah, that that's an important distinction that that is not just that you just have more more time maybe with the, the the customer to to educate them or maybe the 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 users on TikTok are more willing to to learn through through TikTok. We talk to us more about your your content creation process for TikTok or for Instagram. Like, what is the 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 approach to making sure that you're always kind of churning out you know, high quality content? You know, it's honestly a real challenge. Content creation is extremely labor intensive, as well as um, takes a ton of creative time to have a point of view on it and even just posting it. So, you know, we, we really do value content creators and the, the work that goes into it. Um, and so we currently create in-house, but are increasingly reaching out to um, do gifting and influencers with um, content creators so that we can repost a lot of their work um, also. Yeah, what's the process there for identifying influencers to work with? Um, so a combination of things, but we have um, influencers who've been wonderful partners of ours that we've built up over time that we we go back to often. So I think really starting to develop and focus on those relationships is important. And I'll be honest, I think this is an area that we we can we can definitely do more work on and want to do more work on um, over time. So so it's sort of a work in progress in my mind. Um, but we've also worked with a great influencer agency to help us, um, also build out that roster and reach out. Um, but some of it's as simple as, you know, getting on social and reaching out to people ourselves, as well as having, um, inbounds from people who want to work with us. And when you work with an influencer, especially when you have a, a, a well-known product in the sense that people know what lemonade is, they know what mixers are, but you have a specific kind of um distinction around yours right with this this focus on uh, on the healthy aspect how do you make sure that that that's communicated rather than just you know that oh there's a new new drink but that they make sure the influence influencer doesn't miss i know you know it's, it's a good question and i think the reality is you have to think about um the influencers as as really knowing their audiences and having their own brands too. And so I don't think that there's that much sort of control that we want to have in the asks that we're making, because what really will work and resonate with their customer or fans, I should say, they know best, not us. And so it's um, when it comes to the mixers, we've sort in the simple syrup, we sort of have a bright line rule, which is if you're making something with our products, please just don't, make it with things that add sugar. So that's our one request is again, just because of, of why we started this and what we're trying to, to accomplish. Um, we want to be able to, to show and showcase recipes that don't have sugar in them. Um, and so that's, that's one ask, but otherwise we really leave it to the, the content creators to create. Mm. Now, speaking of things like, like imagery, you mentioned that you have design in-house, and I really love the packaging for, for these products. Talk to us more about the, the way that you've been able to, to develop the, the packaging on the cans or the mixers or the bottles. Talk to us about the process around that. 
Yeah. You know, that is like so much more art than science for sure. Um, I know I've said this a few different times and, and, and certainly value it. We have design in house. And so we have, um, two women on our team, Hannah and Brittany, and Hannah has really led all of the creative for all of our packaging. And it's so powerful to have somebody who is so seeped in the brand, you know, really believes in the brand to do packaging. Cause at the end of the day, we think our, our liquid and our, and our packaging are actually kind of one and two, our best marketing, um, tools, right? If it tastes great, people will just buy it. And if it looks great, that really helps to pull it off the shelf and communicates what it is. Um, and so going back to your question of, of having some experience, I think we've been able to develop tighter and tighter briefs over time of exactly what the call outs are and what matters for shelf appeal and, and, and knowing that customers have like nanoseconds of time to like glaze over the shelves and making sure that our, our key points come through. Some of it is in language, but a lot of it is just like overall look and feel impact. Yeah. And what about the website? Has that gone through iterations as well? Or, or is this the, the... We actually haven't done that much on our website since we launched in 2019. We've done um, some, some, some iterations to add SKUs, to add a little bit of merch um, and things like that. But you know, at the, at the reality is in terms of our DTC business, we do have specialized landing pages. So we've iterated on those. And, and I think that's been helpful because that is something that we do kind of keep refreshing based on feedback and based on conversion metrics. Um, but the overall website has sort of stood the test of time, which I think goes back to the, the importance of building a powerful brand visually, because the you know, if you have a strong point of view of what the brand is and how it looks, then it kind of lasts. Makes sense. Are there any certain uh, apps or tools that, that you do rely on though for, for the website that to help you run the business? Yeah. So we do email capture, apps, which helps with Privy. Um, we use Clavio. I haven't really spoken that much about email, but I, I mean, we really think email is such a powerful tool for us too, of um, retention and, and communicating our brand um, values and, and products. Um, so we use Clavio for email. Um, we use Loyalty Lion for our loyalty program. Um, we have reviews with Yacht So we definitely use a lot of different apps. Yeah. And when you, I think you had mentioned that you do SMS as well. I see you, you listed PostScript, I think is probably what, what you're using for it. Talk to us yes. about the the kind of messaging that's different between what you send through email versus like SMS. Yeah. You know, I think SMS right now is kind of the wild west when it comes to marketing and there's not that many sort of, it's just not super developed in the U.S. right now, how we SMS market. And so we look at it as it's, you know, anyone, any customer whose phone number we have, we feel like we really have to take care of that. So we really use SMS sparingly and really just use it for something that really is a value to our customers. For example, we use SMS when we have a new product launch and we have um, an exclusivity for our SMS list and our sort of super fan customers to have get the product first and have early access to it. We use SMS for deals. Again, something that's a real value to the customer, but we really don't use SMS as 
um, abandoned cart reminders or other things like that right now, just because we don't want to overload people on that channel. Makes sense. Now, one thing that I see on your website too that, that that I love and I love when other brands do this is helping the customer use their product. So you have a page on your or a section on your website for recipes. At what point did this come along? When did you decide to that a recipes section would, would be important to add to the website? You know, we did it really early on. Again, it comes down to being an ingredient. We just wanted to to give people ways to use it, and um, it it's definitely been a help for us throughout. We've solicited uh, recipes from our customers, from different trade partners, and and really do do like our recipe page a lot. And do you find that customers will make a purchase after going to the recipes page or just something? Yeah, that, we do. Okay. We do. Yeah, I like it because um, for, for anyone that wants to check it out, you know, tastespoon.com is a website. Um, but just to describe it, basically you have the the, the recipe, but then right underneath it is a call to action to purchase the, the ingredient that's required to to make this this product. I think it's just a great way to combine the kind of content and, and, and um, commercial aspect of, of it all together. Um, so again, tastespoon.com is the website. And I'll leave you this last question. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenge for, for you and the, the business that, that you're focused on in this coming year? You know, the, the, the reality is that we're at this, we've, we've sort of are at this inflection point where we have historically had um, a strong online presence for sales and we're shifting over to have our retail be larger than our online presence just by nature of um, getting more distribution and, and bringing on new retailers. And so this year, I think one of our, our, our challenges is shifting a little bit the, the center of gravity for the whole team to think most about retail and the retail customer journey and retaining that retail customer and talking to that retail customer. Um, I think digital is a very great tool still to, to market to, and to, to, to work, you know, have communication with our retail customer, but it definitely creates a more arm's length relationship than when it is direct on our site or even on Amazon. Um, so I think that'll be our big challenge will be shifting sort of team, shifting culture, shifting um, marketing to to really take care of and grow the retail channel. Awesome. So again, tastespoon.com is a website. Thank you so much for coming on, Christina, and sharing your, your story and advice. Thank you so much, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.